The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we who are seated here in, in the room come before you in prayer, even as at the same time we hear others walking out, heading off into other places in the building. And I want to thank you for who those others are, children of the congregation and workers who will be ministering to them now, some, some parents obviously coming back, but Lord, a whole group of people go out, and I pray you would go with them, that you would be with them there, that you would teach, and that you would raise up kids, that you would build your church even from young ages. I thank you for the, the noise and the distraction because of who they are. Go with them. Bless them and raise them up. Because you are God, we also pray that you will be staying here with us. You will be both places teaching each one here according to our need, according to where we are, what we bring into this place and what you want to say to us, Lord tailor the message to each heart here as well as out there and raise up those who are here in this room we ask this of you we, we dare to ask this of you because you are a, a, a strong God able to overcome all barriers and you are a good God eager to overcome all barriers desiring to raise up a people for yourself. So we ask you to bless, and we pray, Lord, would you own this time, and, and would it be freely yours? Sometimes, Father, we acknowledge, sometimes we come to church, and we, we sit in a sanctuary, and we are um, maybe overcome by the form, and by the formality, and by the, um, by the setting and the scene, and we lose track of, of the sight of you. So please present yourself to us as you are, a good and strong God, and particularly this morning, a merciful God. Help us to deal well with this, this issue of judgment that comes up in the passage. So help us to deal well with it, because we can go off the rails either way, and we need to understand it. But over all of the discussion about judgment, would you please, in the beginning and at the end, would you lay over it a clear sight of a glorious mercy? It is a unique aspect of your glory that you are the God of mercy. You are not the God of permissiveness. You're the God of mercy. Help us to understand the difference in that, to walk carefully in it, and to not get lost in the, the carefulness of it and the, the watching where we put our feet, but to walk. Even would you for some this morning set them free that they would run, that they would skip for joy, perhaps, finding mercy. It is a sweet thing that we long for and that we need because we deserve something other. We need mercy, and you are that kind of God. So would you, to us here in this room, and perhaps to children in classes out in the hallway, down the hallway, would you to us, your people here today, and to those who are not yet your people but are here today, would you press into us this marvelous truth that you are a God of mercy? Help us to think about judgment well and help us to marvel at mercy. Own this time, I pray. Father, would you send your spirit here to be in us and over us and to control our attention and to set aside all barriers. If there is sin in us in some way or another, would you call that to attention now and cause us to repent and set it aside? We want to hear you speak unfettered and unhindered. So, Spirit, control our attention here. 
Open your word to us. Give clarity to my words. And bring your truth home to us for our good and for your great glory. Towards this end, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 6, where we have been considering Jesus' extended teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. And over the last several weeks, we've addressed the first section of this sermon, seen the four Beatitudes and the four woes. Jesus introduces this and, and is teaching it to people who profess to be his disciples for the encouragement of those people, us, believers. And he does that. He aims to encourage us by turning our eyes towards the certainty of the future and, and the reality of what happens in the future. He wants to remind us of a coming time when, though things are one way now, there is a time when they will be turned upside down and blessing will fall on believers. He sets that up. He, he prepares us with that because he's going to take us into the next section, the heart of the sermon, the verses 27 and following, the centered paragraphs that deal with love and call us to a, a high standard of love. He commands and then explains and then commands again and then explains again before finally commanding a third time, love. And in particular, love your enemies. And even the hardest of all enemies. So certainly everybody beneath that. So the hardest of all enemies and those who are only mildly oppositional to you and those that you have a hard time dealing with and those who just aren't really your friends. Everybody, all others, love. And that word others is the one he uses in verse 31 when he calls us, as we saw last week, to thoughtfully consider the other, what in those shoes, what the need is, what that person in this situation needs, and then do it, the command. Do that for this other of all sorts. So not just for friends, and not just regarding what they might be able to do for us in the future. So we're not going to, to give, to bless, so as to receive back from them horizontally, but he does call us very much to, with eyes on God, give, expecting to receive from God reward. We are actually to seek that reward from God by giving. So he's calling us to think like this, not just like this. Calling us to a very high love of other, like God, who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's where the passage ended last week, which brings us to this week, a third paragraph, which is still about love, even though the word's not in it. It's still on the same subject. It's kind of an application of love, an extension of love, how we deal with other people lovingly, love lived out and applied. If I put the main point for verses 36 to 38 in a sentence, it would be this. Here's my main point for this morning. Simple sentence. Looking at God, disciples are merciful, not judgmental. Looking at God, disciples, of course I mean disciples of Jesus, disciples are merciful, not judgmental. That's what I'm going to unpack in two observations. First, the, the what, the merciful, not judgmental, and then the looking at God part will come up second. So I'm going to make two observations, but let me just read these three verses here, 36 through 38. Jesus said, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's the passage, and I'm going to make two observations First, the what. We must deal with others in generous mercy, not judgmentalism. We must deal with others in generous mercy, mercifully, generously, not in judgmentalism, not with a judgmental attitude. Verse 36 is a command, and as 
repeatedly throughout this section, the commands are all straightforward and they are about habitual, continual action on our part. We are to be characterized by this. Be merciful. Which is a word often used in a whole bunch of other passages to describe God. And same thing here. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. God is loving. God is kind, as we just saw in the previous verse. And he is merciful. All words that are a bit different, but are all clearly kind of connected to each other. They're, they're related. They all fit together. Mercy, the withholding of some often hard, deserved consequence. Or the refraining from some sort of often painful or distasteful punishment. So withholding, refraining. In this way, mercy is not giving what is expected and deserved. So not giving, or if you're the receiver, not, not getting what you should get. So it's similar to kindness and to love, especially when you think about, as, as God is described, kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Should ungrateful people receive kindness? No, they shouldn't. Should evil people receive kindness? No, they should get something else. But God does not give that. He is merciful to not give what they should get and instead graciously to give kindness, to give love. So the words all kind of hold together. This is what marks God. He is loving, he is kind, he is merciful, and it's what to, is to mark us. So they are related, but merciful takes us a little a step further if you think about it. As if we could go further. If you've been tracking the previous paragraphs here, it should feel like we're about as far as we can go. The bar is about as high as it can get. And here it goes a step further. Because you could think of love doing good, blessing, the words that he has commanded of us earlier, you could think of that in a context that's almost kind of a bit a neutral context. Here's a person that totally disagrees with me, that I don't really get along with, that I don't really like, but I'm, I'm going to love him or consider what he needs and do good to him. That would be love. That would be what Jesus has been talking about. But merciful takes it one step further and assumes there is, in fact, something in the moment right now to be merciful about. It assumes that you, the merciful one, have been offended, grieved in some way. So I am, to call, I am called to, you are, we are called to love here in this context of certain present tense realized offense. And in that light, I am to mercifully refrain from punishment and then give and then love. This is full orb love. It's not just love, it's love in the light of present tense offense. Or to put it another way, be merciful, that is, judge not. Don't condemn, but forgive and give. 37 and 38 has four different commands that all hang together and all are, are further explanation and expansion of fleshing out of, of the basic command in verse 36. They help us understand the idea of mercy. So we're going to look at those and think about what Jesus means, but we first have to think about what he doesn't mean because as soon as we come to judge not, we all know that for many of us it seems that John 3.16 and the first part of verse 37, the only words in the Bible that we know. Jesus loves me, don't judge me. That's good enough. We, we know that's common. It is, it is out there and even in here. It, it is frequent, common that we see those words kind of taken out, quoted in isolation as if they are an absolute. Judge not. Sometimes that's used then as an attempt to keep anybody anywhere from calling anything sin or error in, in an extreme sense, but probably less frequently, less, less, more frequently, less extremely. We kind of tend to use that only on the touchy things. 
things that are a bit tricky, a bit controversial or emotionally charged. Who am I? I mean, I don't think it's right, but who am I to judge if two other people who say they love each other can't get married? Who am I to judge that? Or who are you to judge that? That those people, they don't have any grounds for divorce. I mean, clearly they're not happy. They're not getting along well. And doesn't God want them to be happy? Who are you to judge them? It's often used, not, sometimes in an, in an absolute great big way, but usually kind of used in the stuff that's emotionally charged and a bit controversial and tricky. And we kind of want to say, the Bible says, hands off, leave it alone. But that's a misuse of the verse. It's clearly missing the context right here in this very sermon and the context of the larger scripture, even things that Jesus himself said. We consider the whole context. Jesus very much means for us to be a judging people. That is, a discerning and evaluating and a calling wrong what is wrong sort of people. That's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. The blessings, the Beatitudes, and the woes are clearly saying that there is a divide. There are good things and bad things, right things and wrong things. The use of the word sinner repeatedly off of Jesus' lips and then calling us to not act like the sinners. The use of the word, God has kindness towards the ungrateful person and the evil person. That clearly is an evil. There clearly is an ungrateful. Those are clear things in this sermon. Not to mention what's coming up where Jesus is going to tell us how to properly, there's a way to do it improperly, but how to properly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Not just out of your own eye, out of your brother's eye. You can do it in a totally messed up improper way, but Jesus assumes that there is such a thing as a speck and that we are to notice it, observe it, judge it, and help take it out of brother's eye. That's this sermon. And it's all over the Bible. Think, for example, of several passages that talk about the process of church discipline where a whole congregation is to evaluate, discern, make a judgment about or the passages that talk about elders. Think of, of Titus 1, for instance, where an elder is supposed to be a person who gives instruction and sound doctrine in the language and rebukes those who contradict it. That necessitates judgment. And the evaluating of what is sound and unsound according to what Paul taught. And not a live and let live attitude, but to actually confront and rebuke the error. Clearly, judgment is assumed and even command. And we, we could go on and we could talk about how we are to speak the truth in love to others and how we are, are we not supposed to share the gospel? Which involves saying, this is wrong and under the judgment of God and there is a single way to be saved. That, that involves discerning and evaluating and calling what is wrong, wrong. Clearly, who am I to judge? I'm a Christian. I have to judge. Who are you to judge? You're a Christian. You have to judge. So what does verse 37 mean? What's he getting at? Jesus is poking at judgmentalism of persons. Jesus is forbidding judgmentalism of persons. The statement judge not is not in isolation as if there's a, there's a, a little box around it. it. It's a part of four statements that all hang together. Do not judge, do not condemn, but instead forgive and give generously. All of those together form a composite picture of merciful. Don't judge condemning, but forgive giving. All together. And when we look at them all together, we realize something. Jesus is talking about our treatment of people. 
not our treatment of actions or beliefs or teachings. He says, give, the last one, the, la- the fourth one, give, be generous. Well, you give to people. You don't give to actions. You don't give to teachings. You don't give to beliefs. You don't give to behaviors. You give to people. And we are to forgive, the third one, people. Not actions. We don't, we don't forgive the slap. We forgive the person who slapped and then turned the other cheek to that person. We avoid condemning people not avoid condemnation of their actions or their teachings. There are things that are absolutely beyond the pale wrong, but we are to not condemn people. We are to avoid judging people then. Altogether, it's the same thing. We avoid judging people even while we can and must judge that is determined them to be in the wrong with their teaching or their action or their behavior. So the kind of judging that we are to do is the kind that faces and rightly evaluates a wrong. And this is so important because not only am I trying to guard against some wide permissiveness, but we have to also realize there is a, a rightness and a truth to calling wrong, wrong. This person does indeed hate me because of Christ. This person does indeed curse me wrongly, does indeed abuse me, does indeed sin against me doing evil. We have to see all that and call it what it is to render a right judgment about that, but not, this is why Jesus so importantly includes this paragraph, not to judge that person. Not for the sake of judging the person and condemning the person, To condemn something is to render a verdict of finality. We are forbidden from saying about a person, I write you off, you are beyond the pale, you are done, gone, you are dead to me, you are beyond hope, that's the last straw, there is no more ever condemned. I will not forgive you, I will never deal with you, I will never be open to you, I will never love you, I will never bless you, it is over. That's condemnation. And you kind of got to say it with that kind of heat, don't you? Because that's, what, that's what's going on there. Put it another way, we must not judge in a way that seeks to discover a wrong done in order to dismiss the person who did it. In order to destroy a person or to tear down the person or to hurt the person who did it with finality. But rather we discover a wrong, and it calls it wrong, in order to forgive the wrongdoer, the next commandment. To forgive. Have you ever heard this said that Jesus doesn't forgive mistakes? He forgives sins. It's important to understand forgiveness. You've got to understand there's something to forgive actually forgive, not just a boo-boo or a slip-up, a sin. It, it is very helpful. It clarifies the situation very much when two people, husband and wife perhaps, or two friends, when an offense has happened, to say out of your mouth the actual words, will you forgive me for, and then state what you're talking about, and then to say, I forgive you. Not just, sorry, eh, no problem. No, it was a problem. That's why there was tension there. Let's be clear. Will you forgive me for, yes, I forgive you. We have to call that, whatever it was, that was wrong. And I am now saying, please forgive Now, in this case, we're not the one asking for forgiveness, we're the one giving it. So we have to say, that right there was wrong, and call it wrong, and say, that right there, I am setting aside, I am separating it from you. In my mind, I'm seeing you with this, and I'm taking this off of you, and I am forgiving you. 
So I will not think of you with this on you anymore. That, that's gone. I forgive. And then even more, I give to you. I give to you generously. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. What he's describing there is the process of measuring out grain in the ancient world. You take the right-sized bowl, measure sort of thing, put grain in it, shake it, tamp it, shake it, and then pack it so that it mounds up and it's just all stuck together so you can't get any more in it. And then you would say, that's a good measure. To the person that you have rightly evaluated, you did this to me and it was wrong. But I will not condemn you for it. I will set that aside. I will forgive that and then give to you. This is ridiculous. Do you get how ridiculous this is? And Jesus commands it. Give to them a full measure. Well, a full measure of what? In the context, probably mercy. But if you reach back into the rest of the sermon, many other things that would describe love. Give to them blessing. Give to them financial help to meet their needs. Give, 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 give. Put yourself in their shoes and figure out what is it that they need. And I give to my enemy who offended We are forbidden a judgmental attitude. We are forbidden from condemning people and called to set aside off of them their wrong and to bless them. This is the command of Jesus. Deal with others in mercy. Be clear, they deserve something else and do not give it to them. Set it aside and instead give them more. When you see and feel the wrong and it is wrong, call it wrong and call it hate and call it cursing and call it abuse and call it humiliation of the striking on the cheek and call it exclusion and call it reviling and calling it a spurning of your name. Those are all picked up from the sermon. Jesus said those things before. Call it all that because it is, but do not sit in God's seat. Do not sit as judge over them. There's only one judge. Our calling is to set that all off of them, to forgive them of all of that, and to seek to bless, to give, to be merciful. Come on, that is crazy. Seriously. S sit under that for a second. I've been walking through words that you probably kind of got the feel of them. I mean, you kind of, if you just read it, you sort of, once you get past the, the judgment thing, you kind of understand, okay, I kind of get what condemnation is, I kind of get what forgiving is, I kind of get what, what giving is. Yeah, sit under that for a second. It's ridiculous. And Jesus couldn't be any more clear. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're going to come to help for that. But sit under it for a second and, and look at it and, and ask, what does that mean for me then? We're, we're failures in it. We're going to talk about what to do with all that. But what does that mean? What is he calling you to do? How are you at this? Look at your life. Does judgmentalism, does condemnation mark you? One big test you could ask, it works for me right away. What do you do when you notice the error done to you? whether it's a sin, 
whether it's a, a statement or an action, whether it's a personal offense. What do you do when you notice the wrong and you feel it? Do you lash out? Do you slander or slay them in your mind? Do you avoid them and never deal with them again, condemning them in their guilt? Or do you see that and, and do one of these? Sideways. I see it and I move towards God on the way towards you. I have to move towards God because that, that hurt. And I got to put that somewhere. I have to reckon this entrusted to him who judges justly. If you remember the words we talked about this a few weeks back from, from 1 Peter 2. Entrusted to him who judges justly. That will be dealt with by him. I put it there, I leave it there, and I move towards you. Is that how you respond? Which is your habitual? It, it doesn't, I don't have to ask that question and think about it very hard because I know what, what's going on in my head. I'm preparing this this last week. Several things happened to me this last week. It's not hard. I ask the question, I see, I'm attacking you in my mind, and I'm, I'm arguing my case about your badness in my mind. Or does it not just stay in your mind? Does it come out to other people? Do you voice what you're thinking with a critical spirit? The aim of which, we can use the word critical in, in a positive way to critique, right? Is criticism or critique the right? What, what are you after? Are you noticing something for the sake of building up or are you noticing something for the sake of tearing down? I don't have to ask myself that question, but just like that, and I know. <laughs> I'm tearing you down. That's why I'm thinking about this. That's why I'm having the conversation with myself in the car on the way home. Because what comes out of this is me proving to myself that I am superior to you and that you are inferior. And there's the critical spirit, judgmentalism. Which, which, which characterizes you? This is so important. That kind of attitude, for it, it hollows out the person who, it hollows you out when you have that attitude. Jesus calls us away from it in part because it ruins us and it is so destructive to, to relationship. It is so destructive to, to other people. There is, there is no promise, there's no guarantee about how other people will respond to you when you do not condemn them but instead forgive them and move towards them. There's no promise about how others will respond, but this much is true. The whole world, we all know that we are failures and sinners, not what we could be, not what we should be, and we spend so much energy trying to hide that and prove otherwise. The whole world knows that, and something unique happens when somebody also realizes that, calls it what it is, and then still moves towards. That is very unique. And it, it, it rings, it sounds like someone else, our Father in heaven. He's the only one who does that. We are acting like him and moving towards people when we acknowledge and call something wrong and still seek to forgive and to give. It's very important for relationship. It's important for us. So, how are you? We're to be generously merciful. As disciples, we are called, commanded to be generously merciful, even towards our enemies. And that is incredibly hard. And as usual, then, Jesus helps us with the hard by giving us some reason to hang on to, which is the second point. We should deal with others like this. We should deal with others 
remembering how God deals with us. We should deal with others remembering how God deals with us. This passage is laced with this sort of thinking. It's in almost every sentence. We could find it anywhere, but we're going to start at the very end and work backwards. So he gives this main command about mercy, and then he gives these four commandments that kind of expand upon it. And then he concludes, very end of the last verse, for, back up a little bit, I guess, give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for, here's the reason, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Notice the same thing we have seen before. There is action and consequence. It is not just a natural following on. There's, there's action and consequence. Give, and it will be given to you. Give with a big measure, and it will be given back with a big measure. Which, of course, implies the opposite. Give with a small measure, and it will be given back with a small measure. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There is action and there is matching consequence, and it's the same all the way back up the line. Forgive, there's the action and the consequence, and you will be forgiven. Don't condemn, you won't be condemned. Don't judge, you won't be judged. Clearly, he's trying to tie together repeatedly something here. There is matching measure, there's action and consequence. A and then B. Repeatedly. That's the arrangement, the environment in which we, we operate. We act, and then a reaction comes to us from whom? From whom? This is not, Jesus does not mean to turn our attention to other people. This is not a statement about sowing and reaping in the world here. That, of course, is true, generally speaking. If we find ourselves being a condemning sort of person, we should expect people to respond to us like that. If we, if we are generous, then our people are often generous back. It's, it's true generally. In fact, Jesus just told us so in 32, 33, 34. He says, sinners love to give to those who give to them. Sinners love people who love them. There, there is in the world very much that. That's just not the point here. Jesus is not turning our eyes towards how people might commonly respond to us. He's turning our eyes towards God. God himself is merciful. Set your eyes on God. Your Father will take the measuring cup you used, will fill it up and pour it into your lap, even when they don't. And they aren't. That's why you need to be merciful to them. They aren't disposed towards you kindly. But even when they aren't, your Father, your Father will. He will take the measuring cup that you used and filled up and pressed down full and poured out to them, and he will take that and fill it up. They gave it back empty, but he will take it and fill it up and pour it back into your lap, which is incredibly encouraging. If you think about it, you don't have to get. You're not giving to get from them here. You're giving realizing, I will get from God who is always faithful. That is incredibly encouraging. And in the same breath, sobering. What if I used a smaller measure? What if I didn't forgive? What if I condemned? What if I judged? I just, you just asked me five minutes ago to think about how am I doing with this, and I ran through my list and thought, failure. That's how I'm doing with this. Total failure. And you've just pointed out that Jesus says, the measure that I use is the measure God's going to use back to me. Well, there's a... I didn't even bring out a measuring cup, let alone fill it up. If I dealt with people with a poor measure and unforgiving and condemning and judging, will I be judged then by God? 
Hang right there. Think about that question. If I judged, will I be judged? Look at the passage and look at the structure. Look at the verse and think about this carefully. I'm trying to be clear about this because we have something we need to work through very carefully here. We tend to do two opposite things right at this point. Tend to do two opposite things. We tend to, first of all, say, no, he will not judge me. And then we act as if he always deals with me in a judging way. And I'm a failure. We say, no, he will not judge me. And we act as if he's judging me. So will he or won't he? Yes and no. We've got to address both of those. And I will get to both of them. Will he judge me? We first have to be honest and face the yes answer. Because it's in every phrase in the passage. It's the whole setup of the passage. And looking at that and reckoning that will heighten in us the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and only fools set it aside. We're going to get to the other. Don't forget, we're going to get to the other. But we have to face this first. While we know that a Christian will never be cast into hell on the day of judgment, we should also recall that that does not mean the day of judgment is not a day of judgment for the Christian. So far, we've seen Jesus talk about reward. Several of the last sermons have grabbed a hold of the, have seen that very word, have grabbed a hold of that concept. We've seen Jesus talk about reward, and he is repeatedly pointing us ahead to the day when there will be reward. And I've said, in the end, though I've offered some ideas of what that might be, in the end, I have to admit, I don't know what that reward is. It's never actually clarified explicitly. But it's there, it's real. There is a reward. And similarly, on that day, there is the opposite of reward. There is such a thing as the opposite of reward. For the Christian... Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking to ministers there about how these ministers build the church. But the idea that he presents there is this this very idea there is such a thing as reward and the opposite of reward. He talks to them about, be careful, he says, how you build on the foundation that I laid. What you've done will be revealed on that great day. For the one whose work was right he will receive a reward. That's 1 Corinthians 3.14, very end of the verse. He will receive a reward. And then verse 15, very next verse. And if anyone's work is burned up because it was wrong, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Genuine Christian, reward and loss. What exactly? I don't know exactly, but reward and loss. Paul used that to say, so be careful how you build. Or consider how Paul also addresses the judgment of Christians again in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. We make it our aim to please him, he says there, for we must all, he's talking about Christians, we, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul realizes there is an evaluator and he sees all and he may reward me on the day. He wants to reward me. He wants to reward. That's why he told you how to get reward. It's along this path. Walk this path. 
chase the reward. But he also is clear, receive whatever is due me for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. There is an evaluation which could become reward and it could become loss. And Paul, reckoning this, realizing this, that's how God will on that day deal with me. Then knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people of this and try to, try to tell them of it. Like he tried to tell the builders of the, of the house, be careful how you build. mindful of how God deals with us in this way, it can grow the fear of the Lord. And we we realize there is a time when I will be evaluated for how I heeded the commands of God on that day and even here now. There is another way that God deals with us, judging, here and now in this life. Sometimes we call it the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12 comes to mind. But it's fair to use the word judge in that context. Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11. Talking to the church, to Christians, about their wrong communion practices. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, they are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Hear the word there, judge, judge, judge. God judges his people in this life to preserve us from death. Spiritual death. So, we have to say first, it is, not, it is not all the same for us now whether we obey Him or not. And it is not all the same for us on that day whether we obey Him or not. Reckoning that Seeing that can is meant to. God tells us that. So as to grow in us this very healthy, very appropriate, proper fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, says the Bible. It, it helps shape us and realize we are people, and we are people who are under command. We are people who are called to be. And we, we cannot sit and say, eh, it's all the same either way. It isn't. Will he judge me for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad? Yes. He sees, judges, and rewards or gives loss. He disciplines now. So heed these commands and use a great big measure then, as he commands here, to pour out blessing after you forgive those who have hurt you. Does he judge me? Yes. Now, what's going on in your mind? For a bunch of us, I just did two things. One of two things. Either I walked through the passage of the Bible so as to undercut this one. Either I just told you something that you totally disagree with. And I hope I just showed you that's the Bible. Or... I told you something that you tragically completely agreed with and, and that's the whole story in your mind and I just crushed you. If you're the first one, all I can say is read those passages. It's true. But if you're the second one, come back. Come back because it is not the end of the story. There is, when we deal with, we deal with God, we are dealing with, with uh, 
immense complexities. And we often deal with complexities by trying to simplify them and eliminating the picture, the part of the picture that's hard. And unfortunately, we who are descendants of Adam, uh, we are prone to believe forever to, and to eliminate the part of God that's good and to believe the part of God that sounds hard and sounds like he's angry with me and sounds like I'm a screw-up and everybody knows it, including him. That's the part that it's really simple to hold on to that. And you can see the verses and you can understand how that comes out of what I just said. And it's not the whole. And it is not even the dominant. God is indeed holy and just and all of His judgments are right and true. And your Father is merciful. And we have an immense contradiction there that will not stand until we think about what God in justice did to be merciful. There was only one ever who did not judge to condemn people, but forgave them and gave. There's one who was perfectly this passage, perfectly merciful towards his enemies, who turned the other cheek when they struck him and when humiliated and cursed and reviled and hated, abused as they hung him on the cross, prayed for them, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that moment, the Father did not forgive him. He forgave them. But he crushed his son under the weight of their, your failure to be what you should be. When when you run through the end of that first point, when you run through how you're doing with that, and you realize, not well, There was one who in his person was judged and crushed for your not well. And that only happened because God the Father, no, your Father is merciful. I want to to reach out there, I want to grab you, I want to shake you and say, please believe this. Not to the exclusion of, of what I was talking about with all. Yes, God indeed judges. God indeed evaluates disciplines. That's true. But please believe this. God is so merciful that He sent His Son so that He could be just, not against you. He wants to be merciful towards you. He sent His Son and He killed Him so that He could say to you, forgiven. I will never condemn you and your person. I will evaluate your behaviors and I will say they are wrong and I will mercifully, graciously, kindly judge you to drive them away. But I will never condemn you and your person. You have to believe that. Everybody says, I believe that. God's kind to me. But you don't. You live as if His hand is above you, poised to strike you constantly. Please believe He is merciful towards you. Don't believe it on my word. Believe it on the word of verse 36 out of the mouth of Jesus. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He will then forever. He will then forever spend eternity proving to you the vast riches of the glorious grace that He has dumped into your lap out of a measure far larger than one ever you ever used. And you'll never come to the end of finding out the breadth and the depth and the height and the length of this love God has for you. 
This is what drives in us mercy because we realize I can really do this. I can go to a Father who is merciful to me, who will take care of all that's wrong. He will judge it. He'll do what's right. He'll either put it on the cross or put it on them. But I can go to a Father who is open-armed and smiling towards me. He will, He will, He will discipline us whom He loves. His children. Whom He loves. His children. Towards whom He is merciful to do you good always. You can go like this. And when you go like this, you find there a Father who is good to you always. Who will never leave you nor forsake you. Will not abandon you to your enemies In that, you find the rest and the security that enables you to give away your life to people who want to take it from you. So while it is, it is immense and it is impossible, it is high, it is far from us that He calls us to love our enemies and be merciful to them and, and to not condemn them but to forgive and then even give to them, while that is incredibly high, it is also possible for you. Is conceptually possible for you? Your life is safe in Christ. And as you set your mind on the one you find there, the one who is for you, and set your mind on that, a renewing, a changing happens in you and it becomes practically possible more and more and more and more. Your Father is merciful towards you. His face towards you is smiling. And mercifully, He grows you and enables you to reckon all unto His judgment. He'll sort it out. To reckon all of your needs and concerns unto His care, He'll provide. And when you see a God who has you like this, conceptually and then even practically powerfully, you grow in and begin to realize I can actually turn the other cheek to the smiters. Please believe your Father is merciful to you. Please believe your Father loves you. And follow Him then into His commanded path of loving and not judging and not condemning others but forgiving them and giving your life away to them. Let me pray. God, help us. God, God help us. Help us to believe what we say we believe. us to believe that you will never judge our persons because you've already judged the person of Christ. And we are safe and secure with you, objects of mercy, recipients of vast grace. And then help us to believe that you will judge our actions. You will discipline them out of us in kindness to grow us and mature us. And knowing the fear of the Lord, then help us to grow in obedience. Attention that is tricky for us, Lord. We, we struggle with it, so please help. Spirit of God, would you own your people? Would you control your people? That is, would you fill them and direct them? Sort out truth in our minds. Direct our behavior. Stir in us confident faith. And then joyful obedience. Thank you, Father. Father of mercy. We love you. Help us to love you more. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. Would you please fill this church and use it? 
to fill this church and make us a sweet-smelling, fragrant offering to you and to the world. Put ourselves in your hands and ask for your attentive, gracious, merciful blessing. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.